Open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. That's where we're going to be today. And there's a place where you can take some sermon notes. It says Luke chapter 13, verses 18 to 35. And so I didn't know if I needed to do a follow-up on Michael's message from last week. He assured me that everything was good on that. No, I heard great things. And Michael, I'm so grateful that you get to step up and preach God's word to these people here. It's such a blessing to us. And Daniel, I continue to be thrilled to have you here just leading us in worship. And I know that my heart's full right now as we open up God's Word, and I hope that your heart is full as well. You can see a title up there, An Honest Look at Our Priorities. And that's where we want to focus this morning. And hopefully that passage will point us in that direction. Life group leaders, where are our life group leaders? Raise your hands so everybody can just see who are those good laborers in our midst. Raise them high so you can see them. I can barely see them. And so, so glad that you guys are helping lead our flock tonight at 5 o'clock. We'll be meeting at McClintock on the Whitter Hills campus. And I just want to let you know, bring your Bible, bring some paper, and bring a pen. And then we'll gather together. We're going to have a meal together and celebrate what God's doing in your life and in this church and also do some training. So looking forward to that. Honest look at our priorities. When you go through a Ph.D., process, you become a student in a PhD program, you learn really quickly the words A, B, D. Now those words, that's an acronym for all but dissertation, or some people would say all but done. In other words, you go through all of your coursework, you lay this foundation, you begin your research and your writing project, but you never quite get it done. Because it's a fairly grueling process to begin that dissertation, and you have to advance research in your field. You have to establish yourself as a scholar. And I've been doing some thinking about this recently and found a report. I think it was completed in 2012 because I was curious. It was called the PhD Completion Project. And in the area of humanities, it broke it down by the different subject areas, but in the area of humanities, 49% of those who actually engage a Ph.D. uh, process never complete the dissertation. 49%. That's a lot of money that's thrown into education, and it never results in some kind of degree at that point. And it's a very difficult process. When you get into that dissertation project and you're trying to advance research, there's a number of rabbit trails that you can go on that get you sidetracked from what you're trying to do. And so some of the best advice I received as I began the dissertation process was to actually, on my computer screen, on both sides of it, I I was really focused in on 33 biblical passages for my dissertation. And so I made a printout of those 33 passages, and I taped them to either side of my computer screen, had it to desktop, and every moment that I was writing or researching or looking something up, I looked at those verses, and I asked myself, am I advancing my understanding of these biblical passages as I write, as I research, because that's my goal? In other words... I had to stay on task. There was a priority for me. It was these particular passages, 33 of them, not the entire Bible, although that's the context for it, but I needed to stay on task. I needed to keep the priority the priority. 
I didn't want to go down rabbit trails. And every now and then I would turn in a draft of what I was working on. And my mentor would look at it and he would say, oh, look at this sentence right here. Notice what you've done here. You've opened up a can of worms. And so now that you've opened that up, here's what I want you to do. Read these 10,000 books and here's four more chapters you need to write. Well, I was smart. I went back to my study and I said, that one sentence is the cause of me reading 10,000 books and adding four more chapters to my dissertation. What if that sentence disappeared? (laughs) And so I created a document of phrases, paragraphs, whatever, that my mentor said, well, since you started to open up that topic, you got to do this. I created a whole document of all of those sentences because when I would give him another draft, if he said, well, what happened to this? Then I could pull it back in and say, oh, I'm still working on that. But if he never noticed it was missing, it never appeared in my paper again. I saved myself a ton of time by that. I didn't want to open up any can of worms. I didn't want to add four more chapters to my dissertation. I wanted to stay on task and keep the priority the priority. Well, here's the wonderful good news of the, of the life that we have in Jesus. is Jesus has laid out for us what his priorities are. And his priorities, ultimately, as we read through the New Testament, are non-negotiable. We can't just say, well, that sounds good, but I've got a better way to live. Jesus lays it out for us, and he intends that we take what he has established as our priorities, and we keep those the priorities, so that when we stand before him one day, we've been a faithful follower of Jesus. We've stayed on task And so we've got to maintain these priorities. And the reason I'm using this as the focus this morning, because as we move into our passage today, I think one of the points that we can pull out of this is that for any follower of Jesus, Jesus's priorities must be our priorities. And what we're going to see him do is he's going to take on the Pharisees again. He's He's going to walk right into the religious leaders and he's going to take them on in another battle and he's going to show them God's priority for how we are to live our lives. And then it's interesting, in the stories that follow, he's going to give a couple of parables. He's gathered with all these religious leaders. He's going to give a couple of stories that are going to show us what it looks like to miss God's priority. But then he's going to end with the consequences of missing God's priorities. And what we have to do as believers is we have to to be able to insert ourselves into this story. It's really important. I think that one of the dangers of being in the church and constantly opening up our Bibles week after week is things become familiar to us. And what you need to understand is the people that Jesus is talking to in this passage, the things that Jesus is saying is familiar to them in many respects as far as what it means to be a follower of God. But Jesus is going to walk right into them and, and cause them to think more deeply about what it means to be a follower of God. And so we are to yield everything to Jesus, everything about our lives. And so as we continue to go through Luke, don't miss that. Every week, We are being confronted with Jesus and who he is and what he's called us to do. And every week we ought to be leaving here thinking about our lives. The problem with the religious leaders is they didn't. 
They didn't think about their lives. Instead, they rejected Jesus. They walked away from Jesus' teaching. Jesus' teachings are to impact us. And the religious leaders missed that. And we're going to see a number of these topics in the weeks ahead. So let me read this passage for us, and then we're going to work our way through it. So chapter 14 of Luke, verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, uh, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to the, take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when you, your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. And then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet, invited many, and at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there's room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and bridges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste of my banquet. Let's pray. Lord, as we open up your word this morning, we all gather here and we've had different experiences this past week. Some of us have pains that have deepened. Some of us have joys that have emerged. Some of us have felt hardened. We feel like we lack any motivation in our lives. Lord, some of us have struggled with sin, maybe even repeated sin. 
and we feel discouraged. Lord, some of us might come in today angry because of what's happening to us in life. And we don't think it's fair. We're not real happy with you. Lord, there's others of us who are struggling. They want their relationships to be better, their marriage to be better, their relationship with their parents to be better, their relationship with their children to be better. And we're crying out to you and longing for changes to be made. Lord, we come for so many different reasons today, but we're here as one body. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would move in our midst today and you would accomplish your work in us. Lord, in your mercy, would you bring light to darkened minds? Lord, in your mercy, would you soften hardened hearts? Lord, in your mercy, would you move in our boredom and stir in us passions anew, afresh for you? Lord, this is your word. It's alive and powerful. We know that it can move into the depths of our being and accomplish a good work. But Lord, we need you to do that. And so we invite you here today, Lord, to have your way with us. And anyone in here that resists that, Lord, we pray that you would break that down and grant a willingness, a desire to hear from you. So Lord, we pray you'd move right now for your sake, and for our good and pleasure. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. The first thing that we want to see here this morning is the context. And chapter 14, verses 1 and 2 is going to supply this for us. I just want to look at a a couple of phrases here. Chapter 14, one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And so when we read this, I don't know if you know anything about what dropsy is. I said, what's dropsy? And so what do you do when you don't know what dropsy is? You go to the Zondervan Bible Dictionary or something like that. You Google it, right? And so I did. And so you can see a little bit about what this disease is. And I just put it up here on the screen for you so that you can see it. It's a condition in which the tissues retain too much fluid. It may be caused by heart disease, kidney disease, or local infection and may terminate fatally. Now, we know all of that about the disease now. But back then, I mean, they, they were probably clueless about a lot of things concerning this particular disease. It results in inflammation in just about any part of the body, and it may become difficult to bend the fingers or wiggle the toes. So that's on the furthest extremities. Then arms and legs may become greatly swollen and have a doughy appearance. The face may become bloated. The abdomen become, can become tight as a drum, making it difficult to breathe. And look at this last statement. In Jewish writings, it was understood to be a result of transgression. And that's really important for us to understand. And that was true of a lot of the maladies that they had back in this particular time period. And so this man with dropsy, here's all these religious leaders, and this man with dropsy, and imagine what their thoughts are about him. So you remember the story in the New Testament possibly where they come up to Jesus and said, uh, why is this man in this condition? Did he sin or did his parents sin? We know it's a result of sin. Who was it that sinned that caused this? And they might be thinking the same thing about this person with dropsy. We also see that it's on the Sabbath. And so as we go down, Jesus, and right there at the beginning, one Sabbath we see there. 
Um, and then Jesus even asked the question in verse 3, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, this particular issue has come up earlier. Look even in chapter 13, verses 14 through 17. We see that it's there. It says in that passage, beginning in verse 14, but the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. And then the Lord answered, and he has a response to them about this. And so you notice even in verse 17, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame as a result of that. So this issue's come up before. So the silence that we're going to see now in this passage is going to be obvious as a result of things that have happened before. But what is going on? What is the issue about this Sabbath? Why does Jesus seem to be so willing to violate what the religious leaders of the day say is against the law. It's really important for us to, to try to understand some background for this. Now, as you look at the, just the big picture of the Bible, go back to the Old Testament, law is very important. So as we move into the New Testament, we, we see the law of Israel, the law of Moses, very important for the people to follow. There's a very clear Old Testament principle. If you obey the law, then the Lord blesses his people. But if you disobey, then you've got the curses. And so you can find chapters in the Bible, Deuteronomy 28 and 29, Leviticus 26, where it clearly lays out, if you obey the law, look at these blessings that you'll experience. If you disobey, look at the curses that you'll experience. It's very clear to the nation of Israel. If they obey the Lord, they will get blessing. If they disobey him, God's been very clear. I'm not just going to throw something on you. I've told you ahead of time. That's, that's good parenting, isn't it? If you violate this boundary, this is what's going to happen. Be very clear with your children. Well, God is very clear with the children of Israel. If they continued to walk away in disobedience, in many ways, the ultimate discipline that could happen to them was they would be removed from the land. So as you read through the story of the Old Testament... Eventually, the northern kingdom is so evil, they are removed from the land. So they're taken away into exile by the Assyrians. And then eventually, the southern kingdom, also because of their disobedience, is taken out of the land. That's the Babylonian captivity, where the Babylonians come in and take them out of the land. But God, in his mercy, and because of his redemptive plan that is focused on the coming of Messiah. So many Old Testament passages looking forward to this. God in his mercy brings the southern kingdom back into the land. Why? So that Messiah could be born. So that Messiah could go to the cross and die for all of our sins, the sins of humanity. So God in his mercy brings him back to the land. You find that story in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. This is when they come back into the land. And in these books, really, I think, for one of the very first, at least clearest times, and especially if you look at Nehemiah chapter 9, one of the most phenomenal passages in the Old Testament. It gives a history of the Old Testament, and it shows the work that God was doing in his people after this exile time. What you see there is they begin to, to grab a hold of the fact that the reason the exile happened is because of their sin. God has been clear. He's communicated. If you obey me, there will be blessing. If you disobey me, there will be curse. We receive the curse. Why? Because we sinned. God, please forgive us. And you begin to see one of the most amazing 
confessional scenes in the Old Testament in what happens in Nehemiah chapter 9. It's a very powerful prayer. So they begin to realize, we brought this on ourselves because we failed to obey the law. Now, in between Ezra and Nehemiah, there's these 400 silent years, and all of a sudden Jesus comes onto the scene, and now we see in the religious leaders a preoccupation with the law. How did that happen? How did we move from, oh, I guess it was us that brought on these problems, to a preoccupation with the law by religious leaders. Well, what began to happen was they began to take the law more seriously. And so let's use the example in Luke chapter 13 um, and the one that we have here in chapter 14 about breaking the Sabbath. In Luke chapter 13, that story we read earlier is about whether or not you can heal on the Sabbath. That's the issue that's going on here. What does the law say? The law, you saw it back in chapter 13. He very, they very clearly say that there are six days. This is verse 14. There are six days in which work ought to be done. But on the Sabbath, you are to rest. So what began to happen is, well, what is rest? What does it mean to work on the six days? We aren't to work on the seventh. We are to rest. So what is work? And they begin to define what is work. And so this is where you now have God's law to his people. And now they begin to interpret the law. And so you have all these writings about the law being interpreted. And then they even went a step further. And they begin to interpret their interpretations about the law. And that's when Jesus begins talking in the New Testament about the traditions of the fathers. You've missed the point of the law. You're so committed to your traditions, you've forgotten what the law even said in the first place. That's what's going on here. Jesus is not breaking the law. He's not going against God's word. He's going against their traditions. And Jesus is trying to make it very clear throughout the Gospels, the Sabbath was actually made for you. It was actually made for you. And they are missing the point of that. So in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 10, where it says, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. They begin to add all of these instructions, all these laws about what it meant to, to keep it holy and to rest and to not work. So when we think about this particular passage, here's the point we need to get. Healing in their minds, in their traditions, not God's word, but in all of their interpretations of all of this, healing was interpreted as work. So whenever Jesus healed on the Sabbath, they were outraged over this. But you must understand, Jesus is not breaking the Sabbath. Jesus is simply being the kind of person that God calls us all to be. And that's why we move into this next point here. God's priority is holy love. And so now Jesus is going to demonstrate this uh, for the people here. God's priority is holy love. And so this man is now before him. He's got dropsy. And so Jesus says to the Pharisees, verse 3, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He's posing this question to them. He's getting right in their face. But they remain silent. Why? We'll just go back to chapter 13, verses 14 through 17. You'll see why they're going to remain silent on this one. They were ashamed before. Jesus made a mockery of them in the midst of the people. So they remain silent. And so Jesus takes the man and he heals him and he sends him away. And then he makes his point. Which of you, 
having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out. In other words, Jesus says, which of you would do this act of kindness? And why would you be outraged at me right now for doing this act of kindness to this man? That's the point that Jesus is trying to make. Now, they're not going to respond to that. They're going to keep silent because of that shame that may still be shrouded over them as a result of what happened back in chapter 13, verse 17. But Jesus does this unthinkable in front of them. Why? Because what it means to be a part of the kingdom is to reach out to needy people. What it means to be a follower of God is to do kindness and justice to people around you. And Jesus wants to model that for them. And he's trying to get them to think, you do similar kinds of things. Why would you not do that here? Because this right here is the intent of the law in our lives. And so the point that Jesus is trying to make is, you would do this. So why are you outraged at me for doing this? And so when we think about just the whole purpose of the law here, it's important for us to understand that it's love. Matthew 22, 35 to 40, Jesus says, on these two commands hang all the law and all the prophets. And so in other words, every law you read about in the Old Testament, and some of them make no sense to us, Jesus says, let's boil it all down. What is the ultimate focus, the ultimate priority of those laws? It's to love your father with all your heart, soul, might, and strength. And it's to love your neighbor as yourself. So what has Jesus just done in front of them? He's loved his neighbor. That's not a breaking of the law. That's doing goodness that he's even called to do. And so Jesus says it very clear in Matthew 22, 35 to 40. On these two commands, every law fits there. That's the point of the law. You could go back to Matthew chapter 12, also verse 7, where Jesus says very pointedly to the religious leaders in a similar context, if you would have understood what this says, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. If you would have understood that, you wouldn't be missing the point in this particular situation. The law was for this. Now, let's, let's fast forward to our lives today. There is no teaching in God's word. You know, we can just equate, you know, back there it was the Mosaic law. And now I'm going to make the, the connection to us. There is no teaching in God's word that is ever a disadvantage for us. Think about that for a moment. Never is there a teaching in this Bible that if we walk in obedience toward it, it is a disadvantage for us. Now, you may think, well, what about those in persecuted countries who just got their heads chopped off because they were a willing follower of Jesus? That's not a disadvantage for them. There's no greater joy than suffering for our Savior. I didn't say there are certain obedience things in our lives that might hurt or cause problems for us, but it's never a disadvantage for us. It is never restrictive for us. God is not trying to hem in our lives and make our lives miserable while everybody else out there has all this fun. It's for our good. It's freeing. It's a blessing to us always. And so when the Bible calls us to do maybe some of the most difficult things, 
Or maybe you're even faced with some very difficult steps that you need to take in your life out of obedience. When God calls you to do that, it's always for your good. It's never restrictive. It's never to your disadvantage. It's always for your good. So when God says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, here's the point. It is for the good of humanity. God's not trying to be restrictive or hem them in or put them at a disadvantage. It is always for their good that God designs the law. And this is God's priority. And the religious leaders are resisting it because why? Because of what God's word says? No, because of their traditions, their interpretations of the law, and their interpretations of the interpretations of the law. They've gotten so far away from God's word that they're missing the point of what it's all about. Now listen, we could stop and look at Christianity historically. Historically, Christianity has also interpreted God's word and set up our own rules, haven't we? we? We all know what that's you know, like to be a part of that. I mean, I remember when I was younger, I grew up in very conservative churches and playing cards was a bad thing to do. You know, I mean, alcohol, and there can be a lot of bad parts of alcohol, but it was just bad. You never touched that. I mean, even after I knew theologically that drinking alcohol was, was not, you know, satanic and against the kingdom of God, it was drunkenness that was the problem. I still had problems. It was so deeply embedded inside of me. You know what I'm talking about? When you have something so deeply embedded inside of you, that was interpretations of what the Bible had to say. And, and we all have different opinions about alcohol. I mean, I don't even like it. So it's, it's not an issue for me about whether I think I should consume it or not. I just don't like it. And I never have. And so there's a... There's a there's a lot of difference of opinions. That, but you need to understand the Bible speaks about drunkenness. And so when we begin to interpret and go all these different directions, then we, we're now got interpretations and interpretations, and we begin to miss the point of what God's word has to say. And so we've got to be very careful. God's priority is for us to line ourselves up with him and to put ourselves in submission to his word so that we can live the life that he's called us to live. And Jesus is modeling that. That's what I want you to get from this first section. Jesus is modeling God's priorities in their life. He is yielded to God's priorities. He's not breaking anything. It's the religious leaders and all their piety that missing the point. Because they don't have compassion for a person in need. And all the law and all the prophets hang on loving God and loving others. And they're missing the point. Jesus is modeling God's priority for them. Now, the reason I want to establish this point so strong, because I think the next parts of this passage we're going to see are connected to this priority. For instance, the next one, I think in verses 7 through 14, we could call this examples of missing God's priority. And so in this first section here, we have a parable of the guest, and this is going to be a teaching moment for the guest. Remember, Jesus is at this big meal. Okay, so now he's healed this man on the Sabbath. He's establishing God's priority for them, but now he's got a teaching moment for the guests. And so this is where he gives that parable about the person who busts into the room, gets there early, puts the bulletin on the seat, mine, so that they can have that seat right there. That's mine. And if they're really greedy, they got the whole row 
with coats laid all over it and Bibles and bulletins and bookmarks. We don't have that problem here. For the, these are not the seats of honor up here. We got one right here. Thank you very much. These are not the seats of honor up here. But we get the point, don't we? In this feast, to sit next to the, the host, that's a place of honor. And Jesus has something that he wants to say about that. He wants to say something to all of the guests. And so he says, don't take that seat of honor. You take the, you take the lowest place. If you take that seat of honor, it's a possibility the, the host is going to come to you and say, oh, excuse me. You're not number one on the list. You're like 10. So move down a little bit. Someone else needs to sit right here. But if you take the least seat, then the host might come to you and say, hey, what are you doing way over here? Come on. Let's go. Come on. Up here. And he'll move you up. Now, listen to what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying, you know, listen, let's all face it. You really want the seat of honor? So let me tell you how to get it. Go to the least, least seat. I know you want to be on the sideline. Get the nosebleed seats. And I'll tell you what, this works. No, Jesus is not giving us some kind of formula to manipulate the system. He's not saying, be this kind of person and then you'll get what you want. But in a sense, Jesus is saying that. But he's saying it different than that. He's not saying manipulate the system so you can get what you want. He's saying, you know what? In my kingdom, my priorities are that you'll be this kind of person. That you'll take the least seat. That you'll give preference to others. And there is a reward to that. And it's, it, we should unapologetically recognize the reward. In verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. But Jesus is not saying manipulate the system. Jesus is saying be that kind of person. And being that kind of person, you will receive your reward. Look at Philippians chapter 2 where Jesus humbled himself and God highly exalted him and gave him a name above every name. Jesus is not saying, hey, you want that name above every name like Jesus got it? They had to do it. He's not saying that. He's saying if you want to follow Jesus, you'll humble yourself as he did. And then in due time, in God's way, he will exalt you and lift you up. The point, ultimately, that we're trying to give here is love will give priority to others. And this is really important for us to try to think through what this looks like in our lives. In fact, a great honor comes to the one who humbles. The difficulty is the pride in us all. What we were singing earlier, I love that song. Rid, what was it? Daniel, can you help me? Where's Daniel at? Dan, where are you at? Dan, 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 Dan. Yes. Well, rid, rid me of myself. Yeah, rid me of myself was that line that was there. And as we were singing that, I couldn't help but thinking about this passage. Rid me of myself. That ought to be a prayer of our hearts. But think about Philippians chapter 2. I've been working on a commentary project in Philippians, so my mind is just constantly in here. Philippians chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4. Paul puts it this way. This is before he talks about Jesus humbling himself and then he is exalted and given a name above every name. He says to the church at Philippi, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind in you among yourselves, which was also which was yours in Christ Jesus. Look what Jesus did. This is the way we are to live our lives as well. And so Jesus is making that point back here. I love what it says in Romans 12.10 in the English Standard Version. Outdo one another in showing honor. If you want to compete in anything, compete in showing honor to one another. Outdo one another. Imagine how that would transform a marriage. If a husband and wife said, I'm going to outdo my wife today. In showing her honor. And the wife was saying, I'm going to outdo my husband today in showing him honor. Wow, that's a recipe for a good marriage, isn't it? Outdo one another. What about parent-child? What about friends who live together or work together? Imagine that person in your workplace that you just can't stand and you're going to outdo him or her in showing that person honor. I mean, what does that look like for us to, to live out God's priority? And Jesus says, I want to tell you a story. This is the kind of person you are to be. And if you miss that priority, here's the result. You will be humbled. You will be humbled. But he's got another teaching moment. I want to make sure I I get to each one of these teaching moments. He's got another one that follows in verses 12 through 14. And in this particular one, he now makes a pointed comment So the other one was a teaching moment for the guests. Now we have a teaching moment for the host. And so he says to the man who had invited him, and he talks about, don't invite those who can repay you. Give generously to those who have no way to pay you back. Love, and the point is, love willingly shares resources with others in need. In fact, a great reward comes to those who bless the needy. And again, you can see that in verse 14. You will be blessed if you live that way. Because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection. So Jesus is, is, is trying to set before us motivation for living according to God's priorities. There is blessing. Take the least seat. The Lord will exalt you. Give to those who can't pay you back. You'll be repaid for that. These are God's priorities. This love that God has already, that Jesus has already modeled for us in healing the man with dropsy on the Sabbath. In Luke chapter 6, verses 31 to 36, if you're a note taker, you might want to write those verses down. That's where Jesus says, hey, if you love your brother, what's the big deal of that? They love you back. Go love your enemy. Now that's a big deal. And that's the same point that's being made here. This is to characterize our lives. This is the simple call on what it means to be followers of Jesus. We are to characterize these kind of things. This past summer, just before I began my responsibilities here, you remember I was in South Africa and Uganda. And I might have even shared this. But I remember when the, the, the pastor at the Bible conference I was doing in South Africa pulled me aside. We had a little coffee shop. And he said to me, this particular question right here, he said, why do you come here to help us? Why does your church spend all of this money to send you here? What, notice this question, what is in it for you? And I told him, I said, there's nothing in it for me. My church sent me here to involve myself with you as pastors because we want to be a part 
of resourcing you to build into your life so you can be more like Jesus. Now imagine that that wasn't so radical for Christians to be doing. That's just the way Christians live their lives, constantly thinking about others and what it means to put them first. It's so important. And this isn't just those who are needy. We're going to look at this more in Luke coming up, but this is also in how do we use our resources? How do we invest the things that God has given us? I play basketball with a group of uh, men at First Evangelical Church of Free, uh, 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 Fullerton. Thank you very much. Fullerton. And most of these guys aren't saved. They began at a Y, and now they play there. And every year at TAPS, they have their $1.99 burger. You ever taken advantage of that? If you have not taken advantage of the $1.99 burger at TAPS, it's awesome. Well, we go there every year to get the $1.99 burger. And one day we were there with about 10 guys, and I had to leave early. And I said, you know what? I'll settle um, with the attendant, and I'll see you guys next week when we play basketball. And I decided to pay their entire bill. I, I, I had not talked to my wife about this ahead of time, but I thought, well, you know, I'll just go for it. It was $100-some dollars, um, you know, buck 99 burger, 10 guys. I mean, they had consumed different amounts of beer or whatever, but it was about 100-some dollars, and I paid it. You know what? To this day, those guys remember that. To this day. Now, they all have the means to repay me. They, have, they probably could have afforded much more to pay the bill than me. But people are impacted by this. And Jesus said, even more so when they can't repay you. And so Jesus is trying to draw this point home. Now, there's one last point that I want us to see, though. The consequences of missing God's priority. This last passage just lands the plane in this series of passages. Because you notice in verse 15, when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said, blessed is everyone who eat bread in the kingdom of God. I mean, this man just feels fat with following God as he sits at the table. And Jesus has a point to make to them. Gathering of religious leaders. They're obviously missing the point. Jesus is establishing God's priority. He heals the man on the Sabbath. They're all angry at him and they they don't know what to do with him. And Jesus is saying, listen, guys, listen, all you religious leaders, don't you dare miss the point here. The Son of God is here and he's pointing you toward your Father in heaven. And the only way you can get to your Father in heaven is through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one's going to come to the Father but by me. You need to listen clearly. But instead, he turns to them, and he tells them this story about the great banquet. And the invited guests were not concerned with this banquet because they had their own priorities. Look at verse 18. But they all began to make excuses. The first, I have bought a field. I must go out and see it. Please have me excuse. Second, I bought five yoke of oxen. I go to examine them. Please have me excuse. Another said, I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. In other words, I think the point here is they have different priorities than the ones that God has established for them, the one that Jesus models for them, the one that they are angry about. And Jesus says, you are in jeopardy of missing the feast. It's a very pointed parable that Jesus is giving here. You are in jeopardy of missing the feast. Now, here's the point that I think that we need to grasp. A feast comes to the ones who have 
proper priorities. A feast comes to the ones who have yielded their lives to Jesus Christ and are following in his steps to the glory and honor of the Father. And that's important for us to grasp. We are to be about Jesus' priorities. There are consequences for missing those priorities. Now make this connection. And this is where I think the, the, the contemporary church today really needs to hear this message. You need to understand how offended the religious leaders were when Jesus said this. You need to understand that they were offended. You want to know why? Because they felt like they were doing everything that was necessary for them to be at the feast. And ultimately, Jesus is saying to them now, you're in jeopardy of missing it. And they're going to be ticked off when they hear this. But notice the connection. It would be like Jesus coming in here today and having similar words to say to us. And we would be offended. Why, Jesus I helped plant this church. I've been faithful in being here. When I was five years old, I said a prayer. And Jesus would want to say, what are your priorities? In light of all of that, have you aligned yourself with me? Every facet of your being, not just syncretistically, I'll take Jesus and my other desires and pleasures and things that I live for. Jesus says, have you firmly established yourself with me? Everything about you. Do you live with the kingdom in mind? Are you living for eternity? Are you using your resources, your abilities, your gifts, your finances, your time? Are you stewarding them all for my purposes? Because it's not about saying a prayer when you were five. It's not about getting a perfect attendance pen at church or Sunday school. It's not about memorizing the whole book of Romans. It's about yielding your life to me and everything. And if we don't get that, we miss the point of what Jesus is trying to say. These religious leaders were offended. The message goes deep and the message needs to go deep for us as well. We need to have the proper priorities. There are consequences for missing them. And we need to understand that we could do all the Christian things in our world today and still be missing out on God's priorities and miss out on this feast. Let's all bow our heads. I don't know what it is that the Lord might be stirring in your heart. But as you bow your heads, I think the first question is, are you going to the feast? And by, what I mean by that is have you embraced the gospel and become a follower of Jesus? Is Jesus your only way to God? If you still have questions about your own salvation, I encourage you, come talk to me, talk to one of our overseers, talk to someone around you, but make sure you understand the gospel. But if you drill that question down, are you going to the feast, you might also want to think about your priorities especially concerning loving those around you. How is this passage supposed to impact the way we think about arguments that we have with others or the way we have broken relationships or struggles within the church 
or struggles with our neighbors or struggles with our coworkers, whatever it might be, what are our priorities? If we just drill those down, what are they? And so I'm just asking each one of you to, to search your own hearts and, and think about what this means for you. Get beyond the prayer you said when you were five and think about the priorities that you have in your life. Are they yielded to Jesus? Lord, we, we come before you again. We've walked through this passage. And Lord, there are things that you want to teach us, no doubt. In whatever ways my words have been weak, Lord, I just pray that you will move strongly in the people's lives. Lord, I pray that you would not let us leave here and distract ourselves with other things without your work being done in us. So Lord, I pray that you will move deeply and that you would deepen our own commitment to your priorities. Lord, I want to commit this church to you. And I pray that the desires for this campus being planted to reach this area would be fulfilled, they would be realized. I pray that you would move in each person here and bring a unity, a unified purpose and passions. Lord, that you would just draw this group together for your name's sake so we could be a light to this community. Lord, do that work in our hearts. Bond us together because of Christ. Give us passions for the work that you can do through us and around us and in us and in this community. Lord, help us all to give ourselves to you afresh. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.